0: I'm Carrie. And I'm Amy, and you are listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover. This is a show where two friends chat about books and reading with another book lover, and we find book lovers everywhere. And talking about books is one of our favorite things to do besides have a glass of red wine after a long Thanksgiving weekend that I was pretty stressed about. It all went okay, but I am ready for my glass of wine, and I'm sipping it as we're talking, Carrie.
1: I'm impressed that you showed restraint and, and didn't knock back a few bottles when you had all those people peopling in your house. It's very peoply, very
0: peoply this weekend.
1: And we may be a little biased in thinking that reading people are the coolest people. So every guest we've had on our show thus far has been someone who interacts with books as Amy and I do with our eyes and our ears, but Valerie Severy interacts with books in a unique way. She is a book sculptor who uses books as both her inspiration and her canvas.
0: Based in Colorado, Valerie is the owner and founding member of Valkyrie Gallery and Studio, as well as an artist whose work is shown and sold in places such as New York, Oregon, California, and Pennsylvania. In this episode, she talks to us about how books inspire her and what her process is for turning an already magical work into something that goes even further into creativity and the imagination.
1: To see all of Valerie's art, you can check her out on Instagram at Valerie Severy, I'll spell that, at V A L E R I E S A V E R I E, or at her website www.valerisevery.com. And on her site, she is offering Perks listeners a 20% discount on anything they purchase from her store for 30 days. Use the code PBBL22. And we'll be posting this information on our Instagram and on our Facebook page.
0: <laughs> but first, so, uh, Carrie, we have some reading problems.
1: Yes. We do. Mine is that I have started, I started it actually last week, two days, but I'm going to be subbing for the next three weeks, uh, 15 days. I'm going to be counting them down every single one. I think I'm subbing in a math class. And while I am, you know, I mean, I'm not a math idiot. It's not the subject that I feel most comfortable in. So I'm having to do probably a little more prep than I would if I was in an English class or in a history class. So I I don't feel as comfortable just sort of winging it. So that means that between the prep and the tiredness that I am going to feel at the end of every day, which I felt on Monday and Tuesday of Thanksgiving week, it's going to interfere with my reading a little bit. So we'll just see how that goes. But I am anticipating that I'm just not going to be reading as much because I'm going to be sleeping more.
0: Which normally would be good news for me because I think that you have read about 30 more books than I have this year or something like that.
1: I'm totally smoking you. It's like ridiculous how much I'm smoking you. You,
0: You're right. So you would think that this would be good news for me because I could catch up, kick you while you're down, you know, while you're (laughs) subbing and not able to read. But no, because I am in a really big reading slump right now. I am having trouble getting through anything. I... Think in the last three weeks, I have gotten through one audiobook. Wow. Wow, that's it. Ooh. Yeah, and I'm reading our book club book for December, which I like very much. But I mean, I could I'm only reading like a chapter a day. It's just like I'm like stuck in mud, hmm. trying to read. I don't know why. I I need to read something that like kicks it, th- that gets me out of it. But I haven't found it yet. Hmm. It's, like I said, it's not that I hate what I'm reading. Right. I like it fine. I'm just having trouble getting through it. You think I'm, it's because
1: and, of the holidays? You think you're kind of sidetracked with holiday thinking?
0: Yes, yeah, a little bit, but also I think I got a little burnt out. Did, wait, wait. Did November burn you out? November might have burned me out just
1: a little bit. (laughs) If I could throw a shoe at you right now, I would totally throw a shoe at you. I mean, it would be a soft shoe. I've got my house slippers on right now, but I would totally throw a shoe
0: at you. (laughs) You know, I love to read. That's why we do this podcast. But there was a little part of me that was rebelling. And I was like, I do not want to read right now. I do not want to read right now. I want to do something else. And that's all. Yeah. So there you go.
1: I think that's also a sign that we're getting near the end of a
0: season. That is true. Towards the end of a season, it always seems like it's going in slow motion. Yeah. All that to say is we love doing the podcast and we love to read, but we're... We're in the dumps right now, Carrie. We need to like perk it up before season six, man. I
1: will will be done subbing and fingers crossed. I'll be able to go on this trip that I've had planned for a while. And if all that works out, I will be renewed and refreshed, I think. And then maybe
0: you'll get some, uh, a book or two for holidays. So. Oh, I've got plenty of books I want to read. That is not an issue. I just have to make some time to do it. I have to decide I want to do it. And I'm almost there. I'm almost ready. I'm almost ready to decide that I'm ready to do it. <laughs> I'm almost ready to decide I'm almost ready to do it. That's right. <laughs> that I sound sounds really motivated. <laughs> I sound really certain about you, you, that. You do. I- you do.
1: All <laughs> right. Well, Let's go ahead and talk to Valerie, because if if anybody can motivate you to look at books differently and see them in a completely new way, I think Valerie's art is what can make that happen. So let's talk to Valerie. Valerie Severy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me.
0: I'm excited, Valerie, because you are our first book artist. We talked to a lot of writers and book club members and booksellers, but you are our first person who uses books to make visual art. So we're excited to talk to you. But first, I want to ask you, what was your experience with books growing up? Were you a reader? I'm a very
2: poor speller. It's gotten better since I've been older. So I had poor, what's the word I want? Reading was a little more difficult for me. So it was it was weird because I gravitated more towards writing, even though the spelling was horrible. I could read what I wrote, regardless of a spelled right or not. And so it wasn't until I think fourth grade, our teacher started reading us The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. And I fell in love with that. And so I think because it was something that really was exciting to me, I'm like, I can do this. If it takes me a year to read one book, then it takes me a year to read one book. I think that when I got into high school, we had to read Slaughterhouse-Five, Kurt Vonnegut. Mm -hmm. And that was really exciting to me as well. And I think typically the authors I'm more drawn to tend to be more in that fantasy, science fiction realm because it uses so much more of the imagination. In my opinion, all reading uses imagination, right? Because you're reading something and you visualize it. But with science fiction and fantasy, a lot of that stuff doesn't exist. So you have no reference. Um, so
0: that's kind of where You're I You're creating started. it in your mind. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So
1: do you tend to read now as an adult? And, and I assume if you do, it's still
2: in those genres? I get very little recreational reading. <laughs> Most of my reading stems from the books that I'm working on. Mm-hmm. So now because that's so limited and sometimes it'll take me a year just because of time. And then I forget what I read. And so I have to go back through, I've really gotten more into poetry Mm -hmm. because I can read four or five or six poems, you know, they're quick little bites of visual and written delicacies. And so I don't have to remember the poem I read before that poem in order for it to kind of be impactful for me.
1: And really, I would think that with you being a visual artist, the imagery, because a poem has to put so much into such a small space, I would think that that would be sort of more conducive to what
2: you do as an artist. Right. Definitely. It it makes it a lot easier because sometimes I'll pick up a book and I start paging through and start reading it that I'm going to actually alter. Occasionally, it's like I'll get an idea of what I want to create visually but the book is so intriguing, I want to keep reading the book. And then I create. there's another vision and another vision. It's like, oh my gosh, how do I narrow down what I want to create? And then with, like you said, with the poems, it's like, it's pretty clear. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. this is the one vision it gives me. Well, we weren't
1: sure. With you being a book sculptor, we didn't know if... It meant that you really love books so much that you find beauty in them in all forms, or that you despise books so much that you want to, you know, use exacto knives on them. So we weren't sure how you were going to answer that
2: question. It's a little bit of both, only in the fact that I had struggled with reading, right? Mm. And so there was a innate frustration there. However, I loved writing, and I do love reading, and I really love books and their physicalness. You know, that's somebody else's artistic creation. And that's somebody else's expression and not just the stories that are inside, but the way that it's laid out and the font that it's used. And especially with older books, you know, the the little etchings, usually, I mean, they're their prints, but they were initially etchings that were placed in the books. I mean, it's an art form in itself. And so mm-hmm. I definitely have a love of books and um, the tactileness to them and the smells of them. I mean, oh, yeah. From, it's it's, it's kind of weird, but they all kind of smell different and, you know, getting used books. It's like, oh, this person, you know, smoked a pipe or <laughs> sometimes you get little food stains in them and they're interesting.
0: So how did you become a a book sculptor? You mentioned that you initially liked to write creatively when you were a teenager. So how did you make that transition from writing the words to then using the printed words in your art? So...
2: Initially, I wanted to go to school for journalism. And I'm old enough that people didn't have computers. Word processors were just coming out. And so when I went to college and you know I went to school of journalism, and they're like, you can't spell, you're never going to make it. So as opposed to be like, yes, I can. I was like, fine, I won't <laughs> do that. I didn't go to school for art either. I kind of kept writing poems and things like that. And I constantly was doing art just for my own enjoyment. And it wasn't till about 11 years ago, 10, 11 years ago, I was doing art that was three-dimensional, but the material cost was pretty expensive. And I was like, oh, I love the three-dimensionality. I love the way that people can interact with it, how lighting will play with the shadows in the piece. I'm like, I need to find something else that is three-dimensional, easy to manipulate, readily available and inexpensive. And I'm a big thrift store person. And I was like, ooh, I should see if I can alter a book, see how that goes. And the first ones were very, very simplistic. It was just a rectangle cut out on the cover. The pages were that same rectangle shape. I had my little black and white painted character and some string and then they're well received and so I just kept going with it and working really more with the stories that were inside and making sure that words that are exposed that at least something in there usually multiple times has significant meaning to the piece
0: so that's kind of how it evolved so when you said you didn't go to school for art but you you know you did art for your own enjoyment what what kind of art were you doing prior to this it was all across the board. I did like illustrative work. I
2: did abstract paintings, did some figurative work. And when I first started getting my art out there professionally, you know, you apply for jury shows and get a piece in here and you get a piece in there. And then I was like, okay, I'm ready to up my game and see if I can get into an art collective, which is a gallery run by artists. And so I submitted my work and they responded like, each piece is great, but you have no cohesion here. (laughs) We want to see a body of work that looks like it's all done by the same artist in the same style. And so at that point, I focused more on my illustrative work, which was typically a black and white character with some kind of a color background. It was much more kind of cartoony and graphic. And then I transitioned from that Into more abstract painting with sewing. And then I went from that (laughs) to they were MDF cubes. So they were various shapes and sizes, but they were three dimensional. And there again, I used the black and white painting. And then the combination of all that led to this little black and white character that was either on the cubes or on the canvases that I did sewing with. And so that was kind of an easy transition into the books because I still have the black and white character. I'm still using thread, but I'm creating that dimensionality by, you know, excavating into a book rather than just having a three-dimensional
0: object I'm applying it to. I love that term, excavating a book, because it makes me think of, you know, even people who, like, I was an English major. And when we would read a book and have to write a paper on it, and that way you're excavating a book too. You know, you're looking for all this inner meaning. You're just looking for it in a different way. And so I really love that that term. Yeah.
2: And part of the reason that term works so well is that when I'm working on a book that has images, you know, I never know how things are going to overlap with each other, whether it be the shapes that I've cut out with the images or images upon images, And as I excavate in, things appear that I didn't notice when I was looking through it. And so it is kind of like a discovery as I'm going through and revealing things and pulling things out.
1: You've called yourself a reanimator of old books. Is that part of what you're talking about now? Is that the reanimation process?
2: That's part of it. Some of the books I use, and it kind of goes in waves. No one's ever heard them. They're just really obscure. And so, by turning them into art, it's kind of like giving them new life, Mm. giving them another chance to be seen as a book and a piece of art, to have sentences be reread. And so, most of the books come from thrift stores, and that's kind of their last stop before. Sadly, they probably end up in a landfill because to recycle a book, you have to take all the binding off and the cover. And most people don't do that, at least with hardcover books. I'm not sure about soft covers. And so I feel like, you know, I'm I'm breathing new life into these books and these stories that a lot of them have been
0: forgotten. On your website, you mentioned that the books that you select are usually from 1972 or earlier. So why is that?
2: So that's when I was born. Oh, so, okay. <laughs> so I figure eh, if it's as old as me, it's it's worth diving into and reinvestigating. Uh, obviously, I've done Harry Potter books and the one near is that old. If I'm not doing a themed show or a commission, I really strive for those older books. Part of it is is I mean, the ones that are much, much older. They just have more history to them i mean there's like so many people have touched them they've lived in so many homes there's kind of an energy that's attached to them the quality typically of the book itself is much better and just kind of one of those random things like oh i was born 1972 that's i'm just gonna pay attention to these books that are as old or if not older than i am
0: well, a lot of those older books too were just beautifully made. I mean, mm-hmm. they have such beautiful covers and spines with, like, things embossed on them, and that they just don't, they just don't make them like they used to. That makes me sound <laughs> like I'm true. eighty years old. But
2: <laughs> <laughs> it, but it's so, it's so true. Books used to be an investment, right? It wasn't just something you picked up and you tossed or you picked up and you donated. You bought it as an investment. You cherished it. You would pass it on to somebody else for them to read. And they were meant to, you know, withstand multiple readings through decades. And today's books just aren't designed that way. Part of it is that's just our culture. We're a throwaway culture. And so, I mean, you can buy books that are made that way, but, you know, you're going to pay 50 plus dollars for them.
1: For what you're doing with the book, the fact that they are more solid, does that make what you do with them, the art that you create from them easier to produce? Because when I was thinking about this and, you know, looking at what you've done with the books, I didn't know if the age of the book, I didn't know if it would make it easier for what you do or if it would make it more difficult because it it is like a tougher, more substantial in terms of like cutting the pages and doing what you do with them, if that would make it more physically difficult for you.
2: Honestly, the older books are a little bit harder to work with. Some of them, the paper quality, it's almost like fabric. And so it dulls the blade a lot quicker. And I have to be you know, conscious about making sure the blade is sharp and that I've got a a good mat that hasn't been used really well. The covers, sometimes it's like cutting through wood, but at the same time, there's just there's just a beauty in that like the newer books i've done like the pages are super easy to cut mm-hmm. and especially if i'm doing what it's called like waste cutting where it's like if it's all text and i know exactly where i need to get to you know i'll cut three to four pages at a time but with like older books sometimes it's literally one page at a time page after page after page and you know i don't mind that because it's like it's what this book needs to be And like with anything older, right, sometimes things take longer and you need to be more gentle and more loving and more patient. (laughs) Right. So I'm curious, when you find a book,
1: you know, just from looking at that book, you know, not even reading into it, but just from looking at that book or looking at the title, do you have sort of an idea or a story in your head or do you read the entire book or parts of it and then create? the story of what you're going to do with it based on the story that's within, or does it depend on the book?
2: When I first started out, I would just buy any book that was old. And Then when I had an idea, I'd look through the books and see if I could find one that had a storyline with the image that I had in my head. And the longer I'm doing this, the more I actually will pick up a book and start paging through it and start reading chapters to see if there's something that's inspiring to me there. I still occasionally do have ideas of my own that I have to search out that book for, Mm -hmm. but I find that it's easier really just to pick up a book and start reading like, Oh my gosh, I've got a great idea for this. Other than having to start with like a blank canvas, which would be hundred percent my own idea. Mm -hmm. But sometimes while doing that, I'll get ideas for something that I want to do. Right. So the book is influencing in other areas that then I then, okay, so I need to keep my eye out for like a book on owls or the desert or whatever it is because I've got this great idea and I just need to find a book whose story matches the vision.
0: So you've said that as your book sculptures evolve, your work grows beyond short stories and moves towards epic series. So can you explain that a little bit? Is that what you're referring to and what you so- just said? So like I was saying earlier on, when I
2: first had applied to a co-op, there was just a mix of everything. Mm -hmm. And when I was initially starting out with my books, each book was kind of off on its own. It didn't necessarily tell the same story or a similar story as the piece I created after that. And so I'm really working more on creating series of books. So there's a book, Dreams by Olive Schreiner. And it has 11 dreams. They're kind of philosophical interpretations of these dreams she had. And I've been collecting vintage volumes of them. And what I really want to do is create an altered book for each dream. And so, you know, you have this series of 11 that, although visually they're going to be different because the books are going to be from different publishers from different years, it's all from the same book. Hmm. And I even have... These thoughts of, oh, and wouldn't it be cool when I'm working on these books, it wouldn't necessarily have to be the, the dream books, that I'm also listening to the books on audio. And if it's a newer book, and then the author is reading that book, you know, it, <laughs> just to really engross myself in that process. So a lot of it is just really evolving my art to have more cohesion in each series that I make, whether it's something that is for one show and I make, you know, 11, 12 pieces, or it's an ongoing series that I create one piece a year for. So it's kind of really delving more into the visual storytelling of the written words, if that makes any sense. Yeah,
0: I love that. And I love it that you are you listen to it on audio as well. So that then you, you get a different dimension of it that way because hearing something read or performed sometimes even is different than reading it. You know, you get a different experience and then you're creating a different experience by making an art piece out of it. So I love sort of like all those different layers. That's really cool. So I want to jump into the
1: nitty gritty of how you make your sculpture. So to see pictures of it, it looks so delicate. Can you kind of walk us through the steps of, you know, you start with this book and, and then what happens next?
2: Typically, I have the book. Usually I'll go on online and get a synopsis just to see if the story sounds intriguing to me. And sometimes at that point it doesn't. And then a year down the road, like, oh my gosh, I remember that book. I've got to go find it. So I do that. And then I'll go through the book. If there's images, I'll page through and I'll use book scraps from other books I've altered to mark possible images I want to use. And then I'll start reading different chapters to get my own interpretations and inspiration. So once I have that, then I'm like, okay, so what do I want to visually create? So normally it's a super super rough sketch. I I have to laugh because obviously I follow a lot of artists and they post their sketchbooks. I'm like, Uh, that's a full-on piece of art that is not (laughs) a sketch. (laughs) So it's like super rough sketch. figure out what I want. And honestly, there's usually more written words in the sketch than there are drawings. Then I'll measure the book cover and I'll do a more to scale sketch of what I want. Then I'll take the, whatever the cutout of the cover is going to be, I will depending on the color of the cover if it's a light cover i will trace that detailed drawing cover cutout on tracing paper and then i'll transfer it onto the cover if it's a dark cover then i'll use transfer paper to kind of trace that cutout on then i just use it's craft knife it looks like a exacto but i don't use that brand i use excel brand which is a great company and everything's made in the USA And they're far superior than Xactos. Anyone wants to try this? Excel blades is the way to go. Anyway, I score the cover cutout. And then I do what's called the stab and drag method. (laughs) (laughs) So, So I take the knife and I kind of stab it in there. And then I pull it forward. And then I stab it back in and pull it forward. So it's kind of like the stab and drag motion of cutting the cover And then once that's done, I take a tiny little metal file. I mean, you could use like even a fingernail file. And I smooth out that opening because with the stab and drag, it's not a super clean cut. Now, some covers, especially in newer books, you know, I can score it two or three times and then get a super clean cut. But since I usually use older books, they're a lot more difficult because of the material that the cover's made from. So then at that point, I'll either then take that scaled sketch and then do the same kind of transfer method, but this would all be on tracing paper because the pages are light and the pencil will transfer right on there, then transfer that first layer. So I do that and then I cut to that spot that I want, assess is this where I want it. Sometimes if I know there's gonna be a lot of detail cutting, I will cut to the page that's before that page. So if that page gets all, nasty, I can just remove it and the page I want will still be fresh behind it. And so it's kind of there's this process of cutting and transferring and then reevaluating. And if the book has any images in it, that's when I really have to allow the piece to be what it wants to be, because things may line up that I had no idea that we're going to I'm like, oh, I need to shift how this image is going to look because I really need to incorporate, let's say, with this happens a lot. If I'm cutting trees, a face will appear in the trees. And so I'm like, I have to keep that. Or, you know, there's a little animal that's poking out. I'm like, okay, I've got to keep that. And so even though everything's really planned out, I also allow for it to evolve on its own. And then there's the very rare, but it does happen. Oh crap. I didn't mean (laughs) to cut that. (laughs) And, I have these rules. So if I've cut it and it's hundred percent cut, it has to go. I mean, I, I could easily just glue it to the page behind it. I just don't do that. It's kind of like, Nope, it wasn't meant to be time to move on, let it go. And so the books are kept as bound. It's just going page by page by page. And I use a cutting mat um, in between the pages when I cut. So at the point when everything is cut, then I dry out my little characters Most of the time they're uh, acrylic gouache painted on watercolor paper. And then those get mounted onto illustration board and then mounted in or on the book. And then the last part typically is the sewing that I do into them. Sometimes that's in the cover. Sometimes it's in the book itself. If it's in the cover, I used to use a little hand drill, which is just manually powered to pre-drill all the holes. I broke my arm this summer, which made it nearly impossible. So I broke down and I bought a little uh, USB rechargeable, like micro drill, which is awesome because it's so much quicker. The holes are so much cleaner and so much smaller. And like, now I just want to totally embroider a cover of a book. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So then I've got all those components together. I drill all the pages. And then I sew them together. So the pages are all bound together. Then I sew in the publication year and the year I create it on the back cover. And I add this little hanging hardware that looks like a little mini coat hook that I make a coat hanger, the back cover, the front cover and the bound pages get glued together and I put them in clamps. And usually it sits overnight. I then take them out of the clamps. Then I take a tiny little paintbrush with, with the bookbinding glue I use, and I seal all the edges of the cutouts. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And then I do um, I spray it with a satin UV spray, and then it's good to go.
0: <laughs> so, I mean, I know it depends on the piece that you're working on, but let's just say for a standard piece that you would do, how long does this process take for you to create one?
2: I, on average, they're about 40 hours. Um, I do these little mini books, which I think you guys have seen. They're like usually animals that either ceiling suspended or mm-hmm. um, hung on the wall. Those ones typically take between 5 to 10 hours. I've done some other altered books that are really, really simplistic that I can get done at about 20. And I've done several altered books that have been well over 100 hours
0: Wow! so <laughs> is it important to you that the book stays intact as a book it, it is because
2: again you're know, going back to that this was somebody else's artistic journey their story their livelihood and i want to honor the fact that this is still a book You know, if somebody really wanted to, they could rip apart the cover and the back cover and cut that binding and whatever I hadn't cut, they could still read. And now that everything is moving so digital, I think it's even more important that look, this is an actual book. Mm -hmm. It's, it's got a new life. It's not something you're necessarily going to sit down and read over the week. You're just going to maybe take 15 minutes to read what I have exposed. And I, I mean, You know, writing is an art form. And so it's just my visual interpretation of it. You had mentioned the book Dreams, the book that Mm -hmm. you were
1: talking about, having that be a series. You've also done a recent exhibition of yours was called Once Upon a Time and featured fairy tales. But Mm -hmm. you've also done shows that were inspired by Lewis Carroll, Oscar Wilde, and even Star Wars. So with those thematic (laughs) ones, I mean, like, for example, the Lewis Carroll, were those all... Lewis Carroll books that you then manipulated or did you find things in different books that that you were able to tie together with ideas that related to Lewis Carroll or whoever?
2: So that was a group show at Haven Gallery out in New York. And so obviously I knew I was going to do Alice in Wonderland. I do an Alice in Wonderland piece every year, although this year I think I did three. Being somebody that always roots for the underdog, I'm like, okay, I need to find out what else he has out there. <laughs> <laughs> and so I found a book of short stories and poems, which was just so fascinating. And so I I did a piece based on one of his poems that, I can't remember the title now, it was The Secret of Love, The Mystery of Love. It was just so beautiful and so sweet. So a lot of times I'm doing books for various shows that have a theme so that's kind of why I choose the books that I do especially this past year I haven't done I don't know if I've done any personal art meaning books that I just want to turn into art
0: like you know that you want to do a Lewis Carroll uh-huh I mean are you still getting your books from thrift stores or are you having to order them online from so, eBay or something
2: it depends with with Alice in Wonderland, I've been lucky enough to probably find three vintage copies at thrift stores, the other ones I've had to go to on eBay. eBay's the last resort. I really prefer the thrill of the hunt and finding them at the thrift stores. Or you know people donate books to me all the time as well. So it's a little bit of both. like the the last Alice in Wonderland piece I did. I had gotten a call ooh, maybe in March, April. There's a local theater that the fire marshals came and said, you have too much stuff in storage. You need to get rid of some of this. And they had lots of books and asked if I wanted to come and take some. And they happened to have, I think it was from the 1930s, a copy of Alice in Wonderland. It wasn't in the best of shape, which I didn't care for what I was going to do. And, you know, they, the books I use don't have to be pristine. And so that was a lucky find. The ones that I had created for Haven Gallery, both of those came off of eBay. So where do you store these?
1: I mean, like, do you have them? Like, (laughs) Is your garage full of books?
2: So I have a studio attached to the collective I run, which really anymore for the past probably two years has just turned into my library. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I have several shelves in the basement, filled with books. And then I have um, (laughs) my home studio, which I actually finally cleaned yesterday, which was an all day task. Um, And I've got several books in there. And nothing's organized. Like I have no idea what titles I have. I think part of it's just kind of fun just to go through and look and re-explore, oh, you know, I forgot about that one. And that's actually how the the dream book by Olive Schreiner came about. It was one of the first books I had bought. And it sat in in a cabinet that actually had doors so I didn't see the books that were in there for about three or four years. And I went to the cabinet to get something else. I'm like, oh my gosh, I forgot I had these books in there. And I pulled that book out. And I was like, oh my God, this book is incredible. So... Yep. They're books and waiting is what I call them. I was just chatting with um, a friend yesterday who's an artist, but also an avid reader. And his friend calls them stacks of shame. I'm like,
0: no book, (laughs) no book could be shameful. That's horrible.
2: (laughs) They're books and waiting.
0: (laughs) So, So I have a question I want to ask you about being an artist and letting go of your art. And you have worked that's in galleries all around the country in Colorado, New Mexico, New York, which means it's for sale. And I've always wondered about whether it is bittersweet for artists to sell their work since it completely comes from your brain and your hands and how you deal with that as an artist. I mean, because the writer who writes the book, a publisher can always print more copies and they always, you know, they have a copy that they could keep. They don't necessarily have to let it go. But you as a a visual artist do so so what's that like for you
2: so it's funny I know plenty of artists who have issues with that and they're like I'm never gonna sell this piece I love it so much for me it's all in the process once the piece is done I'm like goodbye
0: (laughs) I mean not in a negative
2: way but it's just like my thrill comes from creating it Mm -hmm. you know and discovering things in the book and learning new techniques and how things can work together and like for me it's the process and it's pretty apparent when you go to my instagram page because there's very few posts with finished pieces unless i'm attempting to promote a show normally it's like oh, i'm working on this i'm working on that this is partially done and Sometimes I'll go back through and I'm like, wow, I never posted a finished photo of this piece that I did last year. <laughs> I don't have an issue with it. I honestly think I'm abnormal in that sense. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I so, love looking at pictures of your work. They're just astounding to
2: me. You know, there's all sorts of different altered book artists out there. And I see my work as being different in the fact that one, I keep everything as bound. I don't add in images from other books. The only images I add are my paintings. You know, if there's an image in the book that I want to use, but it's on the other side of the page and I can't figure out how to fold it so it's still in that bound order, I just don't use it. And most altered book artists, it's it's just a different process. And there's no right or wrong way to do it, though. This is just how I do it. And I have these rigid rules that I create by
0: (laughs) why do you think you have so many rigid rules about it I think
2: honestly for me the more rules there are the more creative I am I think that's part of the reason I found this so much more appealing than painting because when you're painting you have this blank canvas and it's just different with a book there's already words there there's already a cover there with color or pictures And so there's already all this inspiration with something to work with. I mean, I think, you know, if there were, this were hundreds of years ago, I probably would have started sculpting marble because, you know, there's already texture and pattern in the stone and kind of working with that to make what is there even more beautiful. And so those, those rules just allow me to force myself to be more creative.
0: I like and that. It's, answer. And it's, and, and,
2: and it's <laughs> problem solving. And I, I love problem solving. I'm one of those strange artists that also love math. So that's probably where it comes into <laughs> the theory of book sculpting.
0: That's right.
1: <laughs> well, Valerie, it has been so cool hearing about your process. We are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're all going to talk about what we're reading.
0: We are back with Valerie and with Carrie. Carrie, we're getting close to the holidays, but I'm pretty darn sure that you're not going to talk about a holiday book.
1: Nope, I'm not. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> I am going to talk about an audiobook that I just finished. It is called The Assassination of Brangwane Spurge. This was a National Book Award finalist in 2018. And it is co-authored by Eugene Yelchin and M.T. Anderson. And I have read books by both of those authors, but they collaborated on this. The person who narrates it is named Gildart Jackson, and he was wonderful. Just the the range of voices that he does. This is a fun book to listen to. It's middle grade book, like a kid who's 10 years old and up. I really enjoyed this. So it's, it's fantasy. It tells the story of Werfel. Who is a goblin archivist and Brangwain Spurge, who is an elf historian. So Brangwane comes to Tenebrion, and Tenebrion is the goblin land, and he comes to deliver what he believes is a valuable jewel to the ruler of Tenebrion, whose name is Gog. So this feels a little bit suspicious because as you are listening to the story, you learn that goblins and elves have been enemies for a long, 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 long time. And so you're thinking, okay, why is this elf historian coming to bring this jewel here? You know, because they hate each other. Werfel is really, he was kind of my favorite character because he takes his job as host to Brangwayne Spurge very seriously. You know, he sees his job is to be Brangwayne's protector. He does everything he can to make Wayne feel welcome and safe. And Wayne, unfortunately, doesn't appreciate this hospitality until it's entirely too late. So the story is is kind of this fun romp. It's got adventure, it's got humor, but it also tells the story of cultural misunderstandings between the elves and the goblins. And what happens when elves assume that goblins are bad or wrong simply because they're different. One of the characters in the story is Spymaster Clivers. He has known Brangwing Spurge since they were young elven boys. But he hasn't been fully honest with Brang Wayne. At the end of the story, though, he sort of gets his just desserts. That's pretty interesting and pretty funny. So I would recommend the audiobook, but there are drawings in the book. And I didn't know this at first. So I was listening to the audiobook, and it would say if you get the audiobook there's a pdf that goes with it so i then went to the library and got the book so that i could see these illustrations because those are really cool too so the audiobook is this great story very well narrated but then i would do both at the same time because you really need to see these illustrations so that you can see kind of how the story goes now the interesting thing is at the end of the audiobook the authors have this little thing where they talk about the way they did the illustrations, which is kind of cool. So, and it ties in perfectly with uh, talking to Valerie and, and the whole visual art thing. So if you like art, if you like illustrations, if you like middle grade fantasy, this would be a book that I think you'd enjoy. So, hmm, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, Valerie, do you have a book that you'd like to tell us about? One you've read recently?
2: So one of the most recent books I've read is Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick. And that's the novel that Blade Runner was based on. And I had seen the movie. I think they re-released the director's cut back in 91. And I hadn't read the book yet. And I've been meaning to and meaning to, and finally a friend um, lent it to me. And I love the movie, but the book is just as it always is, right? So much better. And there's, a main theme in the book is called mercerism which is kind of like a modern day religion and it's not even touched on in the movie It talks about the need to be kind to animals that animals because most of them are extinct at this point are like gods which ties back into caring about nature and the fact that in mercerism There's a lot of struggle and a lot of pain you have to deal with, and it's just part of it, which is really part of everyday life, right? I mean, we all go through things that are uncomfortable to hopefully lead us to a better place.
0: Did you feel like, I know you said you liked the book better, which usually Uh that's what happens. Did the movie, besides the mercerism that you're talking about, did it follow the book fairly closely or were there a lot of things different? A lot of things different. And it's interesting
2: um, because I believe Philip K. Dick was still alive when that movie was made. How much authors really get a say in how their books, their stories get translated. Because to me, it just, it was a totally different story, really. Mm -hmm. And a lot of Philip K. Dick's books, because I've read several short stories of his as well. And honestly, I find this with a lot of books. Doesn't matter when they're written. The stories really are relevant, whether it was written 20 years ago or 100 years ago, you know, because we're all human and we all share the same experiences, whether it's fantasy, whether it's real life history, whether it's just fiction. I think that's part of the reason why reading is so enjoyable, because it's so easy for us to connect with those characters. Mm hmm.
1: Did you see the remake that they did? I can't remember who. I was. haven't. You honestly, haven't seen that? Okay.
2: I typically don't watch movies or TV. I'm too busy making art. You
1: know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a huge movie goer, but my husband, he's a huge fan of Blade Runner. So when the new one, and I, it's probably not even that new. I don't even remember what year, but when it yeah. came out, he wanted to see that. And then when I read the book and I'd seen Blade Runner, the movie and mm-hmm. then i read the book before we watched the the new blade runner and i was like this book is nothing like these movies yes nothing I know. nothing yeah. so i was really surprised by that i i mean that happens but i don't know i was just expecting it to have more of a connection definitely yeah
2: i mean didn't didn't you find the mercerism so intriguing
1: yeah, but you're right. I said I had read the book, but I sort of forgot about it until you just mentioned it. I was right. like, oh, yeah, I mean, that was like, I do remember that. Was that.
2: Like a huge theme in the entire book. Right. <laughs> and they totally
1: erased it. Right. Well, Amy, are you mm-hmm. reading a Christmas book?
0: I did actually read a book that uh, has a Christmas setting. It's a book called Gobbledy by Lise Anna Langston, and this is a delightful story for ages nine through 12, or if you're like me, an adult, but it's the story of Dexter, who's 11, his little brother Dougal, who's nine, and their mother died six months ago. It's almost Christmas, and it's the first one that they've had without her, and their father is grieving. He spends a lot of time at work. He's never around, and he's been kind of weird, and he's not very happy with Dexter, Because Dexter seems to get into a lot of trouble. Not bad trouble. He's not a bad kid. Just the kind of trouble that wears on his teacher's nerves. And they send a lot of notes home. So Dougal, on the other hand, the nine-year-old, he's the model student. And he's much more responsible than his older brother. Well, Dexter is trying to get his science project ready to turn in before the holiday break. And he's built a cricket colony from crickets that he's collected from the woods behind his house. That he and Dougal and his best friend Fiona play in all the time. But one night they see a strange flash of light in the sky and a loud noise in the forest. And so the next day when they go to get more crickets, there are strange glowing stones in a ring in the forest. Dexter crams one of these stones into his backpack in a jar and he heads to school. So when he gets to school, the gold rock is there, but now there's this strange looking bug in the jar that's not the crickets. And it's a bug that he's never seen before. And the bug keeps getting bigger. So Dexter takes it back home and he starts putting food in the jar. And the bug now is so big, it doesn't fit in the jar anymore. And it doesn't look like a bug. It's furry and it's cute. And it looks a little like a chinchilla with really long <laughs> legs who will eat anything. So the golden rock has hatched an alien and they name it Gobbledy. So Dexter, Dougal, and Fiona are on an adventure to keep Gobbledy hidden because they're worried that adults will cage him and do horrible studies on him. And they're also being chased by a society that believes in all kinds of crazy conspiracy theories and they are trying to get Gobbledy so this was a fun little holiday read that reminded this 80s girl of et it is action-packed and fun for readers of this age and while it takes place at christmas time it isn't overly saccharine but it does have the requisite school holiday pageant and it has some really great action scenes and big vats of ketchup which a kid of that age would find hysterical so i gave it three and a half stars and my main complaint about it was that i wanted more i wanted to know more about what happened at the end of the story what's going to happened to gobbledy dexter and the gang and to me there were some parts of the story that weren't fully realized but again when i read books targeted for this age group i have to remind myself my 49 year old self is not the intended audience for this book (laughs) so for a nine-year-old it might satisfy all their curiosity it's full of love and enchantment and it leaves you feeling happy so this book has received some accolades from some indie book publishing awards and Carcass Reviews called it hugely entertaining and emotionally moving. And I think this would be a fun one for parents to read with their kids this holiday season if they're looking for something different and don't mind Aliens at Christmas.
1: Well, I couldn't help think I was like, this sounds like Stranger Things.
0: Well, <laughs> except for the Stranger Things is their alien is not so cute and cuddly. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Yeah, but it definitely had that, that 80s alien vibe to it. Well, it's definitely, you know, there's a, you know, a group of friends. So you have like Mm -hmm. this buddy adventure. And so with some sort of magical or alien, whatever you want to call it, elements to it. So it was definitely a fun little book for that age. And it was fun for me because I just needed something light. And I saw it on Instagram and someone just happened to mention it. And I'm like aliens and Christmas. That sounds awesome. And so so I downloaded it immediately uh, and it hit the spot. So there you go. Very
1: good. All right. (laughs) Well, we are going to take another quick break. And when we come back, Valerie's going to answer her three about me. We are back with Valerie Severy, and are you ready for your questions? I am. All right. So I've heard artists say that eyes are sometimes the hardest thing to get right on a piece of art. And there's the saying that eyes are the windows to the soul. But you have said that eyes are one of your favorite things to paint. So why is
2: that? You know, I think part of it is because eyes have so much expression and... They're so unique to each person. And so I save them for last, typically. Part of it is, again, with the expression. So I've got everything compiled. It's like, what really is this character feeling, thinking? And so by doing the eyes last, I can seal in the mood that I want them to have. And plus, because I like them so much, it's it's kind of like my dessert. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I guess when I think of an artist painting eyes, I think of portraits, right? Like so, you right. have that real person in front of you, but yours are characters. I mean, they're not right. real people. So are they harder to do that way? They,
2: I'm trying to think how long ago this was. Maybe seven years ago. I had a, was working on a piece, and I had gotten one eye done. It was late at night. I'm like, I'll just do the next one in the morning, and. I could not get that second eye to look like the first eye. So I ended up scrapping the whole painting part of it and starting over. And I can't remember the tile, but it had to do with David Bowie because his eyes are totally different from each other. Mm-hmm. Really? Um,
0: yeah. Yeah. Different colors? Well, or- he
2: ha- I think he had an accident. So one eye was permanently dilated and I think they may have been different colors as well. So, They can be frustrating, right? Because especially when I'm working so small, it's really apparent if they're not quite in line. And some of the first characters I did, I intentionally had one eye much bigger than the other to help deal with that. And then the more refined I get, I'm like, no, they really kind of need to be more human-like or at least symmetrical. I fantasize about like taking a month and just sketching people's eyes like that i come across like hey can you sit down for 15 minutes and just let me <laughs> do a quick sketch of your eye just to kind of really get to know the eye more you know from different people because as artists if we don't have a model that we're creating from we're just gonna draw ourselves because that's what we're used to seeing mm-hmm. and that's what our when we think of an eye we think of our eye because that's what we know they're just so lovely i have lots of eyes from different artists. Um, up in my house.
0: (laughs) So do you have a bunch of eyes looking at you at all time? Are they up up on the wall? Oh yeah. (laughs)
2: It doesn't creep me out. (laughs) Maybe that's why I like spiders because they have eight eyes.
0: Okay. So question number two, most people talk about how much they love summer. At least they do here in Kentucky, but you are the opposite. Winter is your season and you love cold weather. So why is that? You know, I would have
2: to say probably part of it is, is that my birthday is in the wintertime. So as a child, it was always like, you know, something to look forward to. I grew up in Wisconsin and loved playing in the snow, you know, whether it was sledding or making snow forts or just snow angels. And then the fact that you get to come inside and get some hot chocolate and warm up. There's just something invigorating about that. And I don't do well with heat. And people that know me know that this is my saying is that you can only be so naked. You can always put on more
0: clothes.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But just going outside and walking in the wintertime, especially in Colorado, the winters are so different. There can be a foot of snow on the ground. And if the sun's out, it's beautiful. You know, you could go out with like a sweater and a vest. You wouldn't need a full on coat like you would in Wisconsin.
0: For me, it's that in summertime, if the weather's nice, you feel like you should be outside doing outside things. But when it gets cold or if it's like kind of nasty weather, it's like this great excuse to just, for me, snuggle down under a blanket, drinking a cup of tea and reading my book, which is what I want to do anyway. Right. But if it's nice <laughs> outside, I feel like everybody's thinking, why is she in the house? <laughs> yeah. You know? So.
1: All right. Question number three. So we understand that you have a fascination with mermaids. What is it about mermaids that you find intriguing?
2: I'd love this question because I'd never thought about it. The fact is I don't enjoy swimming. I really don't enjoy the water, but I think I want to, I'm a horrible swimmer. I shouldn't say that I can swim, but I can't tread water. So I think that's like me embracing water in a way that I don't physically. So fantastically, it's like, oh, if I would, I mean, a mermaid would be awesome. And the ocean is still so, so new to us, so unexplored. And so a mermaid would be like this great creature to be, to be able to see what is up above the ocean, but also be able to live down in a world that's unknown. They're just magical, you know, and they've existed for at least, you know, in literature and in maps and stories for a long, long,
0: long time. From Uh, looking at your work on Instagram, you have a lot of work that features water type things like whales and dolphins and mermaids and things like that. So it seems like it's a theme a little bit. I love water. I just don't like being in it. I live vicariously
2: through the mermaids in my books.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome.
1: Well, Valerie, thanks again for joining us on The Perks. We have thoroughly enjoyed chatting with you today.
2: Oh, thank you. It's been such a treasure and so enjoyable. And thank you for inviting me.
0: Thanks for joining us this week. Follow us on Facebook at The Perks of Being a Book Lover or on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. The show notes are also included on the description of the episode on your podcast player. We have a new updated website that has some great new features, including listener book recommendations and pictures of our guest pets. So come by and take a look. If you like what we're doing with the show, tell a friend. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to help people find us. Another great way to get the word out is to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. The more ratings we have, the more likely that our show will pop up for listeners looking for bookish podcasts. And writing a review is great, too. If you leave a review, we'll read it on the air. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives at forwardradio.org.